0: Since we do have a couple of minutes, how many of you are here for the first time this evening? Show of hands. Okay. Well, welcome those of you who are here for the first time. Uh, This is uh, an ongoing discussion uh, about the Bhagavad Gita, as the quintessential yoga text. And we figure, since we do only one verse a week, and there are 700 verses, it works out to about 13 years. weekly classes so uh even though it's it's five years we're only at the end of the second chapter but we we do we we kind of you know jump off the end of the board and and, uh, go do other things we've had a we did a seven week detour into the ramayana we had dance and music and puppetry and drama and all kinds of cool stuff like that and we'll we'll screen some films and talk about them We experiment a little bit in an attempt to bring the Bhagavad Gita, this millennial text, into a contemporary uh, perspective. And toward that end, it is my great pleasure to uh, introduce our special guest this evening. Um, I think. When Tripurari Swami and I first met, we were about twenty-five years old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> twenty-five years old, so that's thirty-five years ago. So when you start talking in terms of thirds of centuries, you know that's really a friendship that's um, uh This is this warms my heart to be able to introduce him to you, uh, because um, I think if we've come to any kind of general conclusions in our talks over these many weeks and months and years, it's that the world needs spiritual exemplars and that ultimately um, our yoga practice is a call for us to become agents of change and transformation in the world, each of us in our own particular sphere. and. Uh, Some of us are called upon to make our contribution on a very small, humble stage. Some on a world stage, such as Triparariswamy. And the chance to come together like this and hear from someone who has such a breadth of experience is a really wonderful and rare opportunity. So I hope hope you'll listen up and ask your questions and and, uh, please join me in welcoming Tripura Swami to Jiva Mukti Yoga.
1: Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Yogi Shor, for hosting me here at Jeevan Mukti. It's a pleasure, honor to be here and to have the opportunity to address you. I should inform you from the onset, if you don't already know, which you probably do, that whatever happened tonight, you're 50% responsible for that. If it's not good, I'll take responsibility, and if it's good, I'll give you the the credit. Hmm? It requires good, uh, good questions or good answers, a questioning, inquiring heart uh, has often caused me to say things I've never said or thought of before. So it's an exciting kind of adventure, these types of gatherings, always fresh, and revelation is... Uh, like that, I like and like to think of it as an ongoing conversation. <clears throat> so tonight, with uh, my host Yogeshwar's permission, I'll skip ahead in the lessons. He, as some of you who are regularly attending know, and those of you who are coming for the first time know, from what he said, he has only gotten to the second chapter. I think. It's a long, long course. That's good. Uh, i'm going to skip to the sixth chapter, the end of the sixth chapter, which speaks about bhakti, mm. and of course the particular lineage i 'm coming in is a is a devotional lineage a lineage of devotional Vedanta mm. let me uh, let me re- <coughs> let me recite the verses uh, first, and um, then we'll try to enter into the spirit of them. So text uh, 46 and 47, end of the 6th chapter. Tapas vibhyo, niko yogi, jnani bhyo, pi karmi karmibhyas ko yogi tasmad yogi bavarjunam, yoginam api sarvesham nam taratmanam, Shadhabam bhajate jomam saame yuktattamo mataha, Yogeshwar says, "Another in the name, of course, for Krishna, the yogi is superior to the ascetic, superior to the jnani, and superior to the ritualist as well. Therefore, O Arjuna, be a yogi. Of all yogis, he who abides in me with full faith, worshiping me in devotion, is most intimately with united Intimately united with me and consider the best of all. I want to talk about this uh, these two verses a little bit from two sides, one side being the what I would call moments, if you will, in the life of the Absolute. So um, ontological moments, they're somewhat objective even though we're speaking about them with the consideration of the, the realm of consciousness. They're ontologically real. There's a, uh, And then there's, from the other side, the subjective uh, experience of those. One could say, in other words, a subjective experience is the whole, but um, I like to think that there is, there is, a, uh, there is a, an objective and ontological uh, truth to these moments in the life of the Absolute. Let me explain. And how this all ties into these uh, verses. Krishna here is speaking about bhakti. So, as we know from the Gita, this is the end of the sixth chapter, sixth chapter The first six chapters are much about the psychology of of yoga and different types of yoga are mentioned with regard to practitioners' eligibility to embark upon experiential spirituality. And um, he's talked about. Prior to yoga, which I would call experiential spirituality, he's talked about religion, so we have a religious orientation and a spiritual orientation to life. One, the religious is meant to lead to uh, the experiential. Unfortunately, oftentimes it doesn't. Hmm? And we get drawn in, perhaps, to a religious idea or ideology based on the experience of another, an experiencer, but we tend to then gravitate towards the fringe of that and identify perhaps with the with the, the particular dogma, the particular rules, the particular mode of dress and uh, expression of a of the tradition, and lose sometimes sight of the uh, exciting essence that we were drawn to in the first place. It is exciting and it is disconcerting. It's a lot of gray area, if you will, and we tend to be more comfortable with blacks and whites than we are with with gray. We may be liberal-minded, open-minded intellectuals here, thoughtful people, and, and think of ourselves as not being black and white, and I'm sure that we're, we're not in many respects, but from a very uh, extreme and radical point of view, spiritual life is asking us to be Gray, love, as much as spiritual life at its heart is about love, wise love. It's, uh, it's uh, as comforting as it is uh, disconcerting. We say sometimes, I've said that, oh, that uh, we can't rest in life, materially speaking, until we find love. We're kind of living for love in search of that. When we find it, however, we find that we don't stop moving, but we start moving in another orbit, love's own orbit, if you will. It's a it's a fast ride. She loves me, she loves me not. It's full of ups and downs, union and separation. It's uh, exciting. It's uh, as comforting, as I say, as it is uh, disconcerting at times. So I think that uh, the uh, real experience of uh, spiritual life, essentially, is much like that. It's, it's continually charting, uh, if you will, new, uh, new territory. Hmm? There's no finality to that. And as we progress, then, of course, to move in the, the current of essential spirituality, we progressively learn that we, we can't take too many things with us. Hmm? That we find, in the words, that from a beginning of perhaps giving things, giving up things, we, in sacrifice, the best things in life are not things, we learn. From that we learn that it is our very selves that need to be put on the needs to be put on the altar. So, uh, from in the Gita here, religious life in general, Arjuna, the warrior, Krishna's student, was quite a a dharmically correct person. He demonstrated that in the first chapter. He gave arguments for not participating in. Um, what was uh, his task, his duty at hand for religious reasons. It's said in the classical world of Vedanta that uh, from religious life we'll come to, again, inquiry into essential spiritual life. From Dharma Jignashu, inquiring about how to be dharmic and be correct, ethically, morally correct, and... uh, and, uh, from that, we develop eligibility to inquire into that which is actually spiritual. In other words, how to, be, how to, how to color our human life with a religious uh, or a godly uh, crayon, hmm? how to wake up in consideration of God, how to go to bed in consideration of God, how to mate in consideration of the fact that in all of these human activities that we engage in, we are dependent to one extent or another, on, for example, nature, to see we're dependent upon the sun and and uh, so forth. So all of our sensual uh, activities, the means by which we, so to speak, go out from within and contact the world of tastes and forms and, and uh, feel things and hear things and so forth, in order for those senses to Function as they do, and give us some experience of the world, of of being, of the nature of 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 existence. They themselves are dependent upon the macrocosm of let's say sun and wind and and rain and so on and so forth. So as you know, we have the Surya Namaskar in yoga, for example. This is part of a whole really religious worldview where we. It sounds kind of. Um, superstitious perhaps at first, but it's it's something like the idea that it, in our house we press a button and we get maybe heat, and then you flip a switch and you get light, and you turn a valve and you get water, and you go to the mailbox and you get a bill. So it's like, there's somebody on the other end, and there's a little gratitude is is, is, in, is appropriate to acknowledge that. We're dependent entities as much as we are independently-minded Western rational people, we are very dependent entities. So to acknowledge that's a good thing. It's really a strength. Hmm? It's really the beginning of our moving in the direction of actual independence, the full sense of independence. Hmm? So in the Vedic world, in the world of Vedanta, in the yogic world, hmm, there is a religious, if you will, orientation in life that's meant to foster experiential spiritual life. It's meant to take us, for example, if we want to have good children and we find there's a mantra for that and there's a ritual for that, hmm? we do that and we do it perfectly hmm? without making any mistake at the right time in the right place with the right ingredients and so forth. You pay the priest the right amount and everything's in, in order. You get the results. It's kind of magical. And so you develop then what comes of this, and so the the, the, the world that Arjuna was coming from this kind of religious orientation of being dutiful and dharmic and so forth was the world where all the human activities were colored with a in consideration of of our dependence recognition of the uh, of, of of our dependence on nature and the idea that there's as there 's consciousness behind or within behind the, the movements of our our psychic and physical dimension, so there is behind the whole of nature. This is, of course, a substance dualism kind of worldview to put it in uh, science of mind or neuroscience terminology. There's a difference between the experiencer and the experienced. Um, and there is some empirical data that some people have put together to help support that idea if you need it, but how much we need it, I'm not sure, because it is our experience that we exist, although we can't prove it. Hmm? And we live our life based on that subjective experience without the need for any objective confirmation of the fact. So if we can convince ourselves, it's probably good enough. Hmm? Yoga is meant to give us experience, actually, of ourself, of the experiencer. Hmm? It's meant to take us beyond... The world of the religious world and the the um, well coloring our human life as I say with a with a with a religious uh, paintbrush and acquaintance with the fact that we are more than human hmm? human life is the chance to be m- to be superhuman, I guess, you could, to love.
0: Hmm?
1: Humans are a rational animal that we said to be distinguished from the less complex form of li- forms of life by our reasoning power, but I like to think, and I think that the Gita also teaches, that more than being rational in human life, we are presented with the opportunity to love, to do things voluntarily, hmm? to give. Hmm? And we find mystically that we grow by giving, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. It would be more reasonable to think that if we had two, we gave away one, we would have less. But we find, although we can't hold up what we get after we give and show it, we ourselves exemplify the fact that giving causes the self to expand, whereas taking causes it to to contract and, and remain within Kind of the confines of uh, the oppression, if you will, that to a greater extent that we find other less complex forms of life experience consciousness is everywhere hmm? but consciousness in human life can say please can say thank you can say you first because we're kind of we're kind of consciousness on probation, if you will we're coming out of the, the we have the opportunity to 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 to, to gain release from the cell uh, and sentence, the cell of our of our mind through the senses. We contact forms, tastes, and uh, scents, and so on and so forth, and impressions form in the mind by which we determine then goods and bads, happies and sads, I like this, I don't like that, this is good, this is bad, this is hot, this is cold, and these determinations um, define us very much. What's my hot? What's my cold? What's mine? Is me. My I is defined by our I is defined by our sense of mine hmm. wants hmm. define our sense of self. That's a problem because we don't really own anything. So, as we know, it's said in common English parlance, things are gone here today and gone tomorrow. This makes for a very uh, disconcerting sense of self. It's uh, constantly in flux. We can't get our feet on the ground. Hmm? Religious orientation meant to help us start to do that by gratitude, by acknowledging we're not independent, even in our efforts to meet our material needs. Hmm? And if we show gratitude, there will be greater bounty. There's a saying, I think it was Grover Cleveland that's very nice. I like to uh, quote it when it comes to mind. Hmm? That uh, it's very true to bhakti, it's very true to life in general. If you love someone, then maybe you know it, they will tell you all their secrets. Hmm? So there may be a way, and I think this is how the, 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 the Vedantins, the yogins, and so forth approached life. Hmm? Therefore, books like the Gita are written in poetry. The Bhagavad its sequel, 18,000 verses of poetry. Little prose in there also, but poetry is more of a participatory language. It seeks to help us really experience the sense that human life affords us, that there's more to life than what meets the eye. You know, in poetry, the moon can have wings and fly across the sky. The world becomes bigger. When we try to participate in it, rather than to control it. Math is a, certainly a descriptive language, but it lends itself very readily to controlling as well. Hmm? To control and to measure, you're probably familiar with the Sanskrit word maya, maya, illusion. It also means to measure, you understand? So to, try to measure, that is, that's where we're, we start, we're on the wrong track. Hmm? It is immeasurable. We are immeasurable. Immeasurably small. Mm? And the world is immeasurably large. Mm? Yoga's brother recently wrote a book about it. What was it called? Hidden Reality? Yeah. Hidden Realities. Hidden yeah. Speaking about the multiverse, in a, in a, I think he said something there to the effect that whatever mathematical e- e- equation that you could come up with for a universe, there is one for that. Mm. So, immeasurably big, and we are immeasurably small, and therefore in immeasurable uh, need. Hmm? Need. Um, Because why? We think we're big, (laughs) and we are immeasurably small. That world of the mind, informed by the senses, in touch with sense objects, where we develop likes and dislikes, goods and bads, happies and sads, and a very sense of mine, that defines our I, is a very, very small world. It's a very uncomfortable world, really. It's it's not comfortable for us, but we often like to think that uh, everybody else should be comfortable within it, which is very unreasonable. We often conduct ourselves in that way. Hmm? Small world, and at the same time, we are allowed to think or feel that we are bigger than we are. that we are a provider, that we are a sustainer. The hmm? fact is, we are being provided for, we are being sustained. The yogic world is a world of really acknowledging this as we move from, even from a religious orientation, as I say, to a yogic or spiritual orientation. Gratitude is kind of the baseline from where we grow, from gratitude to, 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 to wisdom, uh, to love, really. Hmm? Wise love. That is. So Arjun was a religious person hmm? and Krishna began to teach him about uh, experiential spiritual life. He was qualified in one sense for inquiry into the nature of the self hmm? and the difference between ourselves and our humanity. Hmm? Interesting idea. Because he was so dharmic, in my life, I've inquired into this. I was not so dharmic as Arjuna to start with, but uh, there's a jump start to this kind of, um, eligibility to enter into real, uh, genuine and deep spiritual inquiry and to move beyond the religious orientation. And that jump start is sadhu sangha. Sadhu sangha, sadhu sangha, sarva shastri koi, sadhu sanghi, sarva siddhi hai. It all begins here. Hmm? This is the whole yogic scene in the Western world. It's all derived from this. Hmm? Sadhu Sangha. Sangha means, of course, association company. Hmm? Yoga. Yoga comes from the root yuj. Yuj means to yoke. We often talk about yoga in terms of its being about letting go, right? Letting go of things. As I said, things are not the best things in life. The experiencer, rather than the experienced, is uh, is what is important. But really, I think the full sense of yoga comes out here in this text. Here, Krishna said it. If Gita is is an authoritative book, authoritative book on yoga, I guess it's one of two. Yoga Sutras of Patanjali would be another. The sixth chapter here that we're discussing at the, 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 the culmination of, is basically the Gita's version of the Yoga Sutra. It's all about Ashtanga Yoga. Hmm? It culminates, however, in this idea of bhakti, bhakti yoga. And in bhakti yoga, we are said to advance by by sangha, by association. Knowledge, to give a contrast, knowledge... The corollary of knowledge is is detachment. To be attached to things that don't endure is not wise. That's very simple. Hmm? That's our part of our predicament. <laughs> We're attached to things that don't endure. This is a recipe for for sorrow. Dukayonayuate, <inaudible> Krishna says. Attachment to the object of the senses is the womb from which sorrow takes birth. The Buddha said it well himself. Hmm? His wisdom is there in the Gita also. Hmm? Wants. These are our problems. Hmm? Wanting things, I should say, is a problem. Hmm? Because, again, things are here today and they're gone tomorrow. What identity will be derived from that? Nothing lasting. A recipe for sorrow. So, letting go of things, this is much a part of yoga. But in the full sense of yoga, as we come to bhakti, as Krishna describes it to be, the full sense of yoga here in these texts, bhakti yoga is about yoking in the full sense. What does yoking have to do? It has a positive connotation. What does it have to do with giving up things? So, in the full sense of yoga, as much as bhakti is the full sense of yoga, as Krishna stated here, things are given up hmm? to the extent to which we can attach ourselves to something or something worth being attached to, something that endures, hmm? which is not a thing, so to speak. But just as we endure, our source is enduring. So yoga means to connect ourselves with our source, which is of a similar nature. If there's anything in this world that most resembles God, the absolute, what would it be? Us, that is the teaching of the Upanishads, we most resemble God because we're different from everything. We are the experiencer experiencing things. Of course, there is a difference between ourselves and the absolute, too, because we're attached to things. (laughs) So that's problematic. Hmm? So to make that connection, this is yoga, the byproduct of which is detachment from things. It's a very, when you look at it like this, yoga becomes very user-friendly. After all, to be wise tonight and go home and, Give up things would be difficult hmm? and that is wise. But who can take that lesson with them and put it into practice to what extent? But if we can give you something else to do hmm? so to speak we can if we can uh, grow in attachment to that which endures our source by some with the help of good association with those who are doing so and knowledge about that source. Then things can be left behind more readily hmm? so yoga is very uh, positive it has a kind of in the past at least said it very it's been portrayed as being very pessimistic with its uh, with its uh, connection with karma and so on and so forth. Uh, of course, we don't think that here tonight, but many intellectuals have looked at it in that way it's actually very optimistic hmm? Yes, it gives a very pessimistic outlook about our prospects for being, knowing, and loving in this world. Hmm? That's a fact. I have a younger brother, and years ago he was searching after me, who had left home and uh, disappeared, so to speak, into the yogic world, as we did in those days. And um, he searched me out at one ashram where he heard I had frequented, and I wasn't there, but some of my friends were. And so they spoke to him about what their his elder brother was, was all about and so forth. And so afterwards he said, it is as if I had painted a picture on a canvas in watercolors of my life, and you have thrown water on it. Hmm? Very pessimistic, my view. <laughs> the prospect of my life. Hmm? of getting the full meal hmm, from the way in which I had thought to orient myself has disappeared. Material life is something like this. The prospect of a full meal comes before us every moment in the form of an appetizer. At every moment we're being appetized to think hmm, that just around the corner the full meal is there. But a meal of Appetizers is a recipe for indigestion. Hmm? This is our predicament. Hmm? We need some negative impetus, I think, to pursue yoga. And we need positive impetus. Positive impetus from sadhu sangha, good association. This whole yogic scene in North America has come from sadhu sangha. Some sadhus in different lineages and traditions who were experiencers in yoga, they came here. They touched us with their sangha. We weren't dharmic like Arjuna. Maybe we had some ideas about it, but they weren't very well thought out. At least they weren't for me. Um, I first met the devotees in this lineage that I joined in Woodstock in 1969. We were trying to be dharmic, I think, but... uh, uh, Arjuna was part of a system of dharma that was well reasoned, that was based on revelation, these sacred texts, and so forth. Hmm? Insights, real clear insights. How to actually color, as I say, our human life with a with a with a with a godly brush, and develop that kind of uh, gratitude. We, we were we were searching, I suppose. But anyway, as I said, the shortcut to this, without going through all that religious exercise that Dharma, that Arjun was expert in, is good company. Of course, in the context of good company, we again then start to think about yama and niyama, what should be done, what shouldn't be done, and we develop a moral and ethical kind of, uh, it should be something like this, I think, essential morals. What will be good for my spiritual practice that I should do? What will not help my spiritual practice That is not that I should not do? Hmm. This is this is then a, a real yogic orientation to life. Hmm? All questions are answered. Yes, there are other debates about social issues and, and the plight of the world and so forth, but after all, yoga is about leaving the world in a sense. Hmm? It's about leaving the world, oh, in terms of what it is about from a certain angle of vision, that angle of vision drawn from the world of our mind, with the happies and sads, goods and bads, hots and colds, which obviously put you at odds with me, if it's hot for you and it's cold for me, there's a problem there's a war hmm? so at the root, this is of course the war of Kurukshetra the Battle of Kurukshetra that the Gita has spoken on hmm? Hmm. we're we're We want to stop war, but we we we're we're the genesis of war, so to speak, by, by our our orientation to life. Hmm? We sense that life must be about unity at its heart. Hmm. We strive for it. But there's a kind of a diversity that's created by our orientation automatically. What's good for you is bad for me. I mean, we may agree and have a group <laughs> to some extent, but even two, right? Relationships are difficult. Hmm? Because your my has not become mine. That is love. In love, what you want become my wants. What I want become yours. You and I become we. Hmm? You don't disappear, I don't disappear, but the, the dynamic union is formed. This is the union of of bhakti. Hmm? The beginning of that then, hmm? this goes high from here. What is love? The beginning of that. Is moving from non-being, so to speak, or being in a very provisional sense. Our I being derived from our my, actually nothing is ours. Our I is very therefore volatile or uh, uh, not enduring. Do we be? To what extent do we do we do we do we do we exist? We 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 sense that existence should be enduring. We have no experience of not existing. But if we analyze it carefully, our I derived from our attachments and so forth, that won't endure. Ayur, there's a nice poem in Bhagavad. Ayur-harati by Pumsam. Uddanastam chayanaso. Ayur-harati. You know, Ayur, ayurved, life. Ayur means life. ayur Ayur-harati pumsam, all people, ayurharati, Jayana so With the rising and setting of the sun, everyone's life is being taken away. Again, it's poetry. When the sun moves across the sky, someone will say, wait a minute, Swami, the sun doesn't actually move across the sky. <laughs> the world goes around like this, and but poetry may help us appreciate it better a better language, to live in that world. Hmm? Try to participate more. Poetry is a participatory language. It tries to make the world as big as the self senses it must be, bigger than what meets the eye. That's me coming out. That's us coming out. We are bigger than the whole world of things Hmm? and smaller than the smallest at the same time. We are immeasurably small and immeasurably bigger than all things. We are consciousness. Hmm? And we make things matter. If matter mattered independently of consciousness, who would know? Who would care? Hmm? We matter. (laughs) We matter. We matter in the wrong way, too we matter in a sense that we project ourselves into matter into material things and they take on a value thereby for us that no one else values except to the extent they have also entered into that particular thing if my car breaks down it's a problem for me not for you hmm? because i'm in my car i don't even mean have to be in it physically my son could be driving it hmm? No one could be driving it. Hmm? It might be (laughs) undrivable. It's a problem for me because I'm in it. In other words, by the two letters my, I've entered into matter in a particular form. So so tell me now, what is valuable about that thing, the car, the house, whatever? What's valuable about it? Me? I'm inside of it. Hmm? So to trace this out, this is the beginning of real spiritual life, What's valuable is consciousness, not matter. Matter takes on apparent value only in relation to consciousness, and we are of the nature of consciousness. We are that gray thing, not even a gray area, that gray thing, purely subjective. As I said in the beginning, we enter into spiritual life. We want to be open-minded. We feel we're not black and white people. We feel there's a lot of gray and so forth. We're open-minded. Spiritual life is a real challenge for that. It says, you are gray. In bhakti tradition, we call it tatasta. It's a gray area. The self is tata. Tata tata means the beach. It's the the line that demarks water from the sand. Can you see it? Imagine. The line that demarks water from the sand. Now try to put your finger there. Hmm? Tata. What are we? We're something that, in connection with a particular type of sangha, association, uh, in connection with that, our identity is really formed. We are n- never independent of an influence, hmm? whether it be a material influence or a spiritual influence. When we identify with the beach, so to speak, well, it feels like solid ground to stand on. Hmm? but as we're explaining, it's not. In other words, when we identify with the objective world of matter, with things, oh, we become, start to become like things. We try to treat one another like things. We, we think of ourselves sometimes in terms of thing, things. Things, uh, matter has, uh, well, its, it's limitations. Um, When we touch the other side, water, then, oh, it's fluid. We could go up. There are waves. Hmm? That's a fact. Chitta-vritti-nirodha. Krishna's talking about something else here. Hmm? Ishvara-pranidhan is his focus and more. Chitta-vritti-nirodha. This is yoga, right, from the sutra. To make the, the lake, the ocean of the mind, placid. No waves, no vrittis, no contact with the objects, of the world that caused the mind to go in waves and make our life uh, one of. Uh, uh, in flux, hmm? in a disconcerting way, like seasick type of waves. Hmm? Yoga is to, to calm the mind. It's a very s- systematic and sophisticated method for arriving at that. When we come to bhakti and I have to go into this, we, we, we want to move beyond that. Sudha satva vishesatma prema susamya bhak we want bhakti britti bhakti britti udai the britti of bhakti that there be a tsunami in the mind of love hmm? tsunami of love of god hmm? this means the whole then the when the tata, when the the, 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 the jeev the self tata, associates On the spiritual side, when we come to the to the to the to the extreme that Krishna is talking about here in yoga of bhakti, Hmm? there are waves there. There's depth. There's heights in the wave. Bhakti is uh, very peculiar in the spiritual uh, uh, marketplace uh, scene because why? (laughs) It's about attachment. And spiritual life is often portrayed as about being about detachment. Hmm? Well, let me give you an example. What today? What day is today? Who knows? Ram, Naomi, Ram, Naomi. You know, the day of Ram, isn't it? Depends what calendar you have, I suppose. But Ram, Naomi, Ram, famous uh, avatar hmm? in uh, Hindu lore. And, hmm? uh, his Servant Hanuman, his consort Sita, Sita Ram Hanuman, Kijai. But you're all Krishna devotees, I guess. (laughs) You've come here. They must be celebrating all over New York and other places around the world. Ram Nomi, it's a huge holiday in India. Fireworks and lights and so forth. Hmm? So, in Bhakti, there are Ram Bhaktas, there are Krishna Bhaktas. These are different waves. You know Hanuman, right? You've seen the picture of Hanuman, the monkey servant of Ram? Ah, oh, so inspiring. Hmm? His dedication, his active dedication and service. There's a nice story. He was called by Krishna. Krishna was in his city, Dwaraka. He sent his carrier, bird carrier, Garuda, hmm? the swan, the bird, (laughs) to inform Hanuman, Krishna wants to see you. So he said, "Okay, well, tell him I'll be there in a minute. So Garuda flew back and thought, what kind of devotee is that? Krishna said, I have a nice devotee. His name is Hanuman. Go tell him I'd like to see him. Garuda, just the perfect servant of Krishna, flies over there, tells Hanuman, Krishna wants to see you. He says, you're one of his devotees. He says, yeah, tell him I'll be there in a minute is flying back. What kind of devotee is this? He come in a minute. Krishna's personally asking him to come. So he gets to Ram, or to Krishna, and uh, Krishna says, oh, that's okay, don't worry about that. What did he say? He said, um, go back, fly back, and tell him that uh, Ram wants to see him in Dwarka." So Gruta flew back, said Ram wants to see you. In Dwarka. So Hanuman roared out, Ram, and he jumped. Hmm? Uh, and Garuda's spoiled, f- he's flying back. And as he's flying back, Ram is coming the other way, saying, Ram. In you know, other he went there and came back before Garuda could return. Hmm? His bias for Ram, hmm? Garuda had a bias for Krishna. There's bias in bhakti. You see how different this is because we, after all, if the president is biased, we got a problem, right? He's bought and paid for by the corporations. Hmm? I've heard a rumor about that. <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem. Hmm? But here we find that bhakti is, is actually based on a bias. It's not merely about ending our biases based on our material attachments to things. Indeed, it's about giving those up by way of developing a bias towards Bhagwan. Bhagwan is the object of bhakti. Paramatma is the object of yoga. And Brahman is the object of jnana. Krishna has mentioned these three here. And a little bit more, but they're three years enough to deal with. Gyan, yoga, and bhakti. Brahman, Paramat and Bhagawan. These are the three moments I began with in the life of the absolute. The Brahman moment means God, the absolute, exists. Being, God is being. Paramatma, another moment. God is knowing. Bhagawan, another moment. God is loving. Now you could be and not know. But you cannot know and not be. You could know and be, but not necessarily love. But you cannot love unless you be and you know. Hmm? In Bhagavan we find being, in Bhagavan we find knowing and in Bhagavan we find love. Not to say that we don't find anandam, ananda, ecstasy, that means love, ecstasy in in Brahman, knowing in Brahman, ecstasy in Paramatma, Uh, being in Paramatma. We do. In fact, there's knowing and there's being. And there's loving in Bhagwan. And in each of these, uh, the measurement, so to speak, is is different. Hmm? Hmm? But there's full loving in Bhagwan. And in one sense, we can say, therefore, there's full being and there's full knowing, because full knowing, what is that? When you love, you know what to do. When you love, you know there's an automatic kind of essential knowledge in loving. No extra knowledge, no extra baggage of knowledge, of knowing, a non-essential things. Love is essential knowing. Krishna said it like this in Gita, in the chapter about knowledge. Rajavidya yoga. Raj means king. Vidya means knowledge. The yoga of the king of knowledge. What did he say? Rajvidya, Rajaguyam. I will now tell you, Arjuna, the highest knowledge, the king of knowledge. And interestingly enough, the king of knowledge, the highest knowledge... Is the highest secret, Rāja Guyam? This is very interesting. The highest knowledge is a secret, he's saying. Hmm? Therefore, what might pose as the highest knowledge may not be so. How does he end the chapter? What is the highest knowledge? Manmana Babamad Bhakto. Madaji Mamnamaskuru. He says, Oh to serve me, to be my devotee. You see. What I mean to say is if we have a lot of things, it may look like we've gone somewhere. If we had a lot of, have a lot of knowledge, hmm, it may o- overtly appear that we're desi- you know, we may be- appear desirable. Hmm. Especially if that knowledge causes me to be detached from things. We think there's a guy, Swami, he's living there. He has nothing. He's in a cave. Let's go there and give him some things or, or something. <laughs> hmm. It's, a, it's attractive. Hmm? Hmm? So spiritual life is often thought of in terms of, as a result of my spiritual practice, I will acquire. This is certainly on a low level, but people do pray for their daily bread, and that's a good start. Hmm? gratitude. Spiritual life is also often thought of as being uh, uh, exemplified by detachment. Who has nothing? He's living in the cave, he must have something hmm? more valuable than the things and so forth. When we come to Bhakti, then what do you get? Nothing. Now, you don't get. You don't get anything. Hmm? But you have to do something. You see, in jnana, you don't have to do anything. The jnana reasons wisely that doing things. It's problematic because it's I'm doing in relation to things, and the things are here today and gone tomorrow. So, this is a problematic life. So, stop doing that's wise. Hmm? But, in so it's a lot, he's lover's life again. You do nothing, it's something like well, Krishna is kind of saying here and very alluding to this idea if in a classroom the child is told he can't have anything, or maybe the parents say, you can't have that. Then he may go sit in the room and say, well, if I can't have it, then I won't do anything. Hmm? So gyan is something like this, the opposite end of the spectrum, from taking to stopping from taking. Stopping from taking is a kind of giving, very in the abstract sense. Hmm? Hmm? But in bhakti, what do we get? You get to serve. Oh, who wants to do that? That's not very attractive. <laughs> huh? Krishna says, "This is the essence of knowledge. Manmanabhamad is to serve me." It's kind of like a very um, obvious thing, in a sense. That's why it's so secret, because common sense is very uncommon. Hmm? So, this highest knowledge, he says, it's very, uh, it's a very, it's a secret. It's a very kind of practical, common sense that, that eludes many people. Hmm? We're serving, we're units of serving capacity, units of giving capacity. We give ourselves at all times. The secret of bhakti in yogam is to give yourself in the right place. How to give to the center. Two ways to give to the center we have to think of. To give without expectation of return. Hmm? And to give to the center we have to find the center. Give to the center. We have to find the center. Krishna is presenting himself here as the center. He's saying there are paths like the jnani that lead to being. Hmm? The jnani in the in mark. it's a kind of yoga. mark. it's nice. Beautiful. Beautiful idea. It's much about being. More than it is about knowledge and more than it is about ecstasy, actually. Hmm? I can't, well, I probably don't have time to go into it in, in detail. Maybe you'll believe me. Hmm? <laughs> Yoga, this is then a subjective path. Jnana is a subjective path that has a corresponding object. Corresponding object in the life of the Absolute, that moment of the Jnani, is Brahman. The Corresponding object for the Yogin is the Paramatma. Omniscience is part of Samadhi. Hmm? This is the ideal. Knowing. This Paramatma is all-knowing what Krishna Namacharya said from the sutras, the goal of Yogam is by kundam. Hmm? This is Paramatma. Krishna has presented himself in a four-armed form, so to speak. That means God, because you know you need four arms to do everything. Two are not enough. God has depicted four arms. He's God. He can do it all. Hmm? The object of Yogam. Hmm? And knowing... Mm. And Bhagwan, ultimately, we come to Krishna. Krishna as the speaker of the Gita, course, is about loving. There can be no doubt about that. Mm? When we come to Krishna, we come to the romantic life of the Absolute, such a, such a, uh, a different idea. We're going high on the tsunami of the, of the ocean of, of possibilities and consciousness and deep to the depths of the bottom of that. Waves of partiality hmm? centered on a moving object Krishna Krishna means he's a moving object. it means that when we sp- we speak about the when the rishis they envisioned Krishna as God, they envisioned reality ultimate reality as as being full and growing always it's kind of a, a really little bit different but somewhat of a You know, process theology. (laughs) He's growing. Hmm? He's known by love. Love is full and full. It it, still it expands always. Krishna is God, so close to us. This object of yoga in bhakti. Hmm? Why? Because Krishna is God. In crisis, existential crisis. We could imagine the the life of the absolute. And the Godhead is experiencing an existential crisis. That's what human life is. I mean, human life is a big question mark. Why am I? What is my, what is my purpose? This, this is a, a question, a subjective question. It doesn't arise in the less complex forms of life because consciousness is not facilitated as much in those life forms. How questions are asked. And answers are given by nature. How to defend yourself. The skunk has a tail. How to eat. Every species knows. How to mate. Every species knows. How to defend themselves. Every species knows. Nature has answered those how questions. And the why question, the subjective question, is not asked. Objective questions are asked. I mean, in relation to matter, to things. In human life, I said, well, we're coming out now from the cell." of material existence, the confines of our minds' demands and demands of our senses, they can be pretty confining. We're coming out from that and we're questioning, is there more to me? I think there is. Intuitively, there's more. Revelation says, Oh It's an affirmation. It means, yes. So what's the question? We are the question. Hmm? And here in Gita, at the end of the sixth chapter, and I'll try to bring it to a closer so you can ask some questions, he's launching into the middle six chapters, which is the theology of the Gita. He's going to talk about himself in every way. Hmm? That object of yogam that is called bhakti, that is the full idea of, of yogam, hmm? all about himself. Hmm? And if we study it carefully, we find oh, uh, he is actually, this is, this is God Absolute, uh, the perfect object of love, experiencing an existential crisis. How this is from so close to us? Then we're we are experiencing an existential crisis. Krishna is God in crisis, questioning about himself. What is the question that he has? It comes here in the Gita, very in a very veiled form. Hmm? It's there, fully developed in the sequel to the Gita, the Bhagavatam. Krishna's This is. This is the angle I've taken in my Gita, to underst- my, my edition. To understand the Gita properly, let's look at the life of Krishna. Let's look at the life of Arjuna that is depicted in so many of the sacred texts. Where are they at at this particular time in their lila? What are they doing? What went before them? Hmm? Now they're having a conversation. Obviously, if you, if you know me, if you know Swami, I know I know where he's from, I've known him for, you know, like Yogeshwar for 40 years. Uh, then when I speak, he's going, to, oh, yeah, that's what he's talking about. I, I, I know. He's given an example from something. He knows me, so he knows what I mean. Hmm? So if we know what Krishna's, what's on his mind, so to speak, as displayed in the Leela, what's on Arjuna's mind, where are they in the context of their Leela? Then this, the deeper significance of Krishna's message in the Gita they come out, hmm? and what comes out hmm? is this, in brief. How is it that God, Krishna, is in existential crisis? He is the perfect object of love, this is Krishna. In other ways, he depicted as the enjoyer. If you're going to give completely, there has to be someone who can take completely. And being qualified to take completely can give back in a way that couldn't be given to everything. Like the stomach is the perfect taker of our food because it can digest it and put the energy throughout the body in a way that no other part of the body could. Hmm? This is the center. And Krishna has been depicted by the mystics' experiences as colored love, the color sham, that's the color of love in in, in Indian aesthetics. Hmm? Decorated with the peacocks, not, not a... Not a big, heavy, heavy crown. Hmm? Um, he's 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 moved by, conquered by love. This is we are that immeasurably small self. The absolute is immeasurably, measurably big, and when that absolute is talked about as Krishna, that immeasurably big comes so close to the immeasurably small. In other words. If I was God, and I'm not, and you knew it, you'd go, oh my God, and move back a little bit. Hmm? Right? So for there to be intimacy between the finite, if you will, and the infinite, the infinite has to take on a finite-like appearance, that is Krishna. Hmm? He's medium size, hmm? Hmm? perfect for loving. Hmm? If you study everything about his form and so it all has it all is depicting the idea that the absolute is is in love hmm? and is conquered by, if you will, love. Love puts the absolute in the hands, the fi- infinite in the hands of the finite. Hmm? A very extraordinary idea. So if we want huge yoga, union, connection, positive connection with our source, in such a way that the, our present preoccupation with things that that's tying us down, so to speak, will be eradicated hmm, easily. This idea is something like this. It's one thing if you could dig a hole and put all your things in it and cover it up. In bhakti, we dig a hole, put all the things and build a temple on it and perform kirtan on top. It'll never come up again. Hmm? Those things will never arise. Going there, you will never return. Hmm? So bhakti for this. Hmm? In other words, what I'm saying to you, Krishna is saying, this bhakti yoga is the best yoga because it's better than me. He says it's better than a tapasvi, it's better than a jnani to be a yogi. The best of all yogis is a bhakti yoga because bhakti is better than me. Love of God is the worshipable object of God. Hmm? And this comes to us, this opportunity, in 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 a wise sense and in a systematic way, in a yogic sense, through good sangha, good association. So I think I should stop and give anyone a chance to ask a question. Are there any questions? Yes. How can there be real love without self-realization? There can't. You're not. So how can we practice bhakti unless we're self-realized souls? Because good question. Because bhakti is so generous. Hmm. Bhakti is two things in one sense. Very generous, extending to the unqualified. And it comes here in this verse. He says, What? Hmm? Shodhawan bajite jomam. Shodhavan. One who is Shraddhavan can do bhakti. What is the qualification for yoga? If you study the sutras of Patanjali, if you study the Gita, many qualifications for yoga are there. Krishna's given this whole first six chapters. If you're like this, you can practice this. If you're like that, you can practice that. What does he say about bhakti? Shraddhavan. If you have faith in bhakti, you can do bhakti. This is her generosity. Bhakti is independent. Knowledge, gyan, cannot come in a heart that's not clear, clean. Therefore, Krishna says, if your heart is not clean, it means if you have attachments to things, then work without attachment to the things, and then gradually knowledge will come in as the heart becomes purified. Bhakti is generous. She comes into the impure heart. There are hundreds of examples. Hmm? You know the Ramayana? It's Ram's day, right? So Ramayana was written by who? Valmiki, Valmiki. Valmiki was said to be preoccupied with, uh, with death, wasn't it? He was always chanting Mara, Mara, Mara. You know the story. So Nard told him to chant, keep chanting Mara, which will turn into Mara, Mara, Mara. I know you do it anyway. Rama, Rama, Rama. Same thing, right? The more you chant Mara, the more it will turn into Rama and so forth. And the more it will end death. Hmm? So, what was his position? He was not self realized. Bhakti came to him in the form of nam. Hmm? Name within the context of Bhakti, nam is most generous. Kirtan, which is very popular, right? You like Kirtan? (laughs) Kirtan is very popular. (laughs) You should should try it. It is a limb of the body of Bhakti. It is not a limb of the body of yoga. It is not a limb of the body of jnana. In popular circles, it's flowed over into yoga. Into Gyan, but it is it is it is, a, it is relative to bhakti, and it's an example of bhakti's generosity because we can do kirtan here, and we cannot be self-realized to do kirtan, and people who aren't even interested in self-realization can be touched by bhakti. So bhakti is very generous. So on the one side she reaches very far down, seeks no qualification, and the other side she extends into post-liberated life, beyond liberation. Brahma Bhutta Prasanatma. Sama param After self-realization. Does hmm? that help? A little faith goes a long way, yes. Uh,
0: the people who come to these gatherings are a pretty savage group.
1: Okay. And, um, Sorry if I feel like sound like a country bumpkin here. I do, I do come from the forest. I'm seeing a lot
0: of heads nodding that yeah, yeah, it's half of the things so far beyond that attachment to things. Um, and one of the issues that's come up, though, is when you kind of get to the other side of that, and uh, let me speak from my own experience here.
1: Okay, please do. I
0: found that when I tried to live a life of detachment, life became rather cold and empty. And it wasn't so much the moving away from as it was going deeper inside my responsibility toward other people that I found what is bhakti in my life. I wonder if you could um, address the difference between detachment as a kind of turning away from it, and uh, detachment as I think Krishna is using that word here meaning going inside the experience with that greater, devoid of a sense of personal um, control of uh, giving up oneself to a relationship.
1: Mm-hmm. I think I understand what you want to say. Uh, I, I think you said it good, but I think I understand it. as unsavvy as I am by comparison to the good audience tonight. Um, yeah, I think that there's um, certainly a large misunderstanding about detachment and all that it, that it involves when you try to transplant something from a culture that of thousands of years ago uh into another culture as yoga for example has been transplanted to some extent into the western world it's very easy to misunderstand things about it especially us we're kind of quick and quick to want to get to the to the bottom line here and what's the you know uh what's the essence and so forth and uh this is a deep subject, so it's easy, I think, to misunderstand, to understand on the surface, and and do a real uh, disjustice, uh, uh, injustice to something like the idea of detachment. Hmm? Um, I like to think of you mentioned relationships. I like to think of relationships as a very good opportunity for. Um, cultivating detachment that's a very different way of speaking about it than than perhaps many people do who speak about giving up relationships and and I'm a monastic so I've been doing this for since I was 22 I'm 62 this year so it's been a long time Um, but I was once in Vrindavan Vrindavan the sacred city in India of Krishna's birth and so forth and we were traveling on a rickshaw, and a wedding was taking place, which the whole town stops for. And they they were blowing horns and music, and there was the the band and everything, and here come the groom on a horse, and all the traffic, the rickshaws, had to stop. So I was with a young monastic, and he said, oh, man, here we were going to a temple for Darshan, and we had to be interrupted by this material affair. Marriage was just so, and I was thinking just the opposite. I was thinking, This is just so beautiful. Just see, because this man and this wife are announcing in a big way everywhere that you know we're together, so don't expect to see him somewhere else or her somewhere else. I thought it was, you know, because we have obviously animal, you know, beastly animal propensities and so forth. Everyone agrees they need to be. Curbed, where we draw the line may be different for different people, but sexual appetite, for example, everybody agrees it needs to be curbed. We don't just jump on somebody at the mall, and because <laughs> we we feel that way. So, so here they were, you know, drawing the line and announcing it everywhere, and, and, and that was a form of sacrifice. In other words, marriage was a form of sacrifice. It was it was moving away from that tendency that could take me here, there, and everywhere, and and uh, and so on. So I saw it as very, you know, very beautiful. I thought they were moving in the direction of renunciation. And they were, and ideally, in a relationship, obviously, I mean, I haven't been in one in a long, long time, as I said, but, uh, you know, you can learn by watching, too. It takes a lot of work, right? Mm-hmm. You have to give, you have to sacrifice to really, to really be in that relationship. You have to see the other person not as an object. And so what, this is all about what detachment's all about. Hmm? So I think there's very much a false take on that. And we find people falsely renouncing. And I know many people y- in youth, in their 20s, who thought they were renounced. And and well, uh, to be frank, I mean, I didn't write my parents a letter for six years hmm? when I, you know, at 20, 22 or 21, uh, joined an ashram, and they found out that I was in an ashram, and I was speaking that night, and I was looking, in the, in, at the audiences that were coming in the door, and there was my mother. She was going around, and said, "Do you know Swami? Do you know Swami?" And she comes around to me, "Do you know Swami?" I said, "Mom, that's me." You know, <laughs>
0: um,
1: you know, I would have done it differently if I was, you know, but you don't do it at 22. What you would have, how you would have done it when you're 50 or 60. So. <laughs> At any rate, I, yes, I think that um, that detachment in one sense is very much fostered by and much, much about accepting uh, responsibility and starting to give. You've got to give somewhere. Hmm? So you got to give a lot in a relationship to, to make it work, and it's worth making it work because what's, what gets in the way of making it work is our... Uh, not wanting to give, that's the whole problem. What gives, you know, <laughs> that's what makes life uh, meaningful, fulfilling. and uh, Does that help? Yes, yeah. That's my answer. Yeah.
0: Um, Guru Maharaj, because um, our ignorance and our attachment and our suffering comes from our amkara, our manas, and our buddhi, and that is manifested because of... The coming together of Purusha and Prakriti. Because we are Purusha, doesn't that automatically make us self realized, therefore bring us into moksha and liberation?
1: Well, we're Purusha and we're Prakriti. <laughs> According to the Gita, Purusha means, uh, has kind of male connotations, I guess. Prakriti has feminine connotation. Um, Depends how you look at us, as I said, we're Tata, so it depend, you know, we're marginal. It depends how you look at it. If you look from one side, we're Purusha. If you look from another side, we're Prakriti. If you look from the side of of Bhagwan at us, we're Prakriti, prakriti. Hmm? We're one of the godhead Shaktis. Matter is another Shakti. Hmm? We're living particle of animation, we animate matter, and so forth. Hmm? Maya Shakti, jeev Shakti. Maya Shakti is called Prakriti, jeev Shakti is called Paraprakriti. Hmm? So from that side we're Prakriti, then you look at the other side of ourselves in relation to matter. We animate matter, so we look like the Purusha. Hmm? So uh, whatever we are, whether you want to call us Purusha or Prakriti or um, Sub-Purusha and Prakriti, <laughs> whatever we are, uh, we're not enlightened. So uh, the idea that we should automatically be enlightened, I guess maybe what you're alluding to is the idea that's sometimes out and about and somewhat popular that enlightenment is not something to be attained. We are enlightened, therefore we don't need to do anything to be enlightened. One of the questions that comes, I think, if you think about this, is: Is there anything to do in enlightenment? Is someone say you are enlightened? You don't have to do anything to be enlightened. Does enlightenment constitute anything of itself other than not doing anything? Hmm? Let me let me answer like this my own question. Negative numbers. If we move from negative numbers to zero, we've come to a positive, right? Kind of. I mean, in comparison to negative numbers, zero is positive. The question remains, are there any positive numbers? What is the nature of enlightened life? Is hmm? it constitute merely not doing something that is unenlightened? Is the full face of enlightenment just not being unenlightened is the full face of knowledge the removal of ignorance, or with the with the with the ingress of knowledge, is there a life that goes with that? Hmm? Does spiritual life end in shanti, peace, or does it end in love? And there's a difference between the two. Peace is inside of love, hmm? but love may not be inside of peace, not the full face of love. Hmm? You can have peace, you can have a truce, but love means the full commerce, interaction of uh, so forth. So. In bhakti, there's a very positive connotation to enlightenment. I'll give you a quick example to to complete this question. What's the difference between karma and leela? You've heard the two terms, most of you. Karma means obligatory work. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. I've taken from the world, and there are reactions from the environment I have to pay. Hmm? Karma is binding. So karma is work, that's obligatory. We've sown seeds. The weeds, if you will, and some kind of bitter fruits, for the most part, will come as well. Leela is also a kind of movement. You've seen Krishna, for example, depicted with the milkmaidens and the cows and playing the flute. This is a depiction of Leela. What does it mean? It speaks about the idea that the, that the Absolute is full and has no need to move. It's not obliged to move like we are. We're feeling empty because we're identified with something that's empty. Matter, it's empty. So we have a necessity born from that identification. Hmm? So some will reason. If we are moving because of identification with matter that's on the move, stop that identification, stop moving, peace. End the war, peace. Shanti, shanti, shanti. If If you're full, why move? But in bhakti, we say, yeah, that's good. We agree with that. That's the self-realization you were talking about. Now we go from there. If you're really full, then you'll move. How do you move when you're full? You dance. You have a need to celebrate your fullness, hmm? which is always growing. So this is leela out of fullness, movement out of fullness, rather than movement out of emptiness. Hmm? Hmm? Or misidentity. I'm sorry or misidentity. yeah the emptiness that' are based on misidentity and there's a kind of fullness that, that results from freeing ourselves from that misidentity which is kind of the zero I wanted to say that's full but there are positive numbers this is the idea of bhakti this is those rittis then in the of bhakti hmm? waves I mean and and, and this is where it, for example in bhakti school of Chaitanya... This possibilities of ecstasy are, you won't find them described in such detail. And, and, and everyone can say bhava and ecstasy, and it's, it's their general terms, but in the bhakti tradition, if you look very carefully, this is where it really excels in in describing that that kind of, well, that's where you find lila, so all that movement that is out of fullness. Yes, you had a question?
0: Uh, I wanted to comment on my Okay, great. The thought that came up for me for what you're talking about was uh, a subtler aspect to detachment, which is uh, detachment of detachment, or from detachment.
1: Detachment from detachment. Mm-hmm. You like that idea? Not being attached to detachment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that that is very much uh, accomplished by being attached to Krishna, for example. So I like it in that context. I think that you have to be careful not to be involved perhaps in an intellectual kind of sleight of hand whereby we think we've gone somewhere by um, notions like that misconstrued, Then you're not doing that, or like I alluded to earlier, spoke of earlier, the idea that, well, we're enlightened, so what's to be done, and the people don't do anything and, and, they're in, and they tell us they're enlightened or they think they are. You can't think your way into enlightenment. You have to start to stop thinking. Uh, that's much more difficult than, than thinking. Um, and I, in bhakti school, we teach not to be attached to detachment. We teach to be attached, for example, to Krishna, and therefore whatever is not favorable for serving Krishna, we're detached for that, from that. So it's not a focus at all on atta- on detachment. It's a focus on loving. We want to love the center, hmm? and Bhakti is a is a is a is a path, is a metaphysic uh, worldview that that speaks about the end of yoga being a loving union, a dynamic union between Atma and Paramatma, between jiva and Bhagawan, not a union that not a union of om, one you know, one sound but many sounds, all properly centered. Mm-hmm. So, again, by cultivating love, if I love you, then I won't want to do things that won't be favorable. That's my renunciation. I'm not attached to detachment. I'm attached to you. And in the context of that, some detachment arises as well, organically. Yes, sir?
0: Last question. Um, so, from what you're saying, attachment to Krishna we're told in spiritual life that you're supposed to kind of have the sense that you know your guru is, in some sense, the best, and like my deity is the best. Like you're saying, we have partiality still in spiritual life. So, how to balance that that kind of partiality with still a respect for other people's best?
1: Very good question, and a very simple answer to that. Everyone should think, my guru is the best guru. Otherwise, why choose that guru? If you don't think like that, how will you give yourself? If you don't feel like that, and it's not a law that we choose a guru, we must have a guru, the sacred scriptures say, and what it means to me is, I must. I sat before her, and I must apply myself here. Everything will come here. I feel it. I have a knowing that's beyond thinking that that I can gain here in a way. this is. I'll put all my chips here. I must do it. Hmm? This should come. But it doesn't come. Don't, 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 don't find a guru on anything short of that. Hmm? Hmm? I must do it. Hmm? Then, so you feel my guru is the best guru. But then you don't want to be sectarian, right? You don't want to be disrespectful towards other gurus. So how do you feel? That my guru is the best guru for me. Mm-hmm. and when I see and how does Guru we have a nice saying in Bengali Brahmanda Brahmite Kon Bhagyavan Jeev Guru Krishna Pasad Bhai Bhakti loto That the Guru is coming from Krishna so this is not this is, we go to look for a Guru but actually the arrangement has already been made hmm? Brahmanda Bramite the Jeev is wandering in the world and by good fortune he gets Sangha good Sangha in the context of that Sangha someone stands out hmm? whose example and whose explanation is compelling i have to i become captured there then i then then he or she becomes captured by me he captures me hmm? and i capture her hmm? i say you must guide me hmm? careful to speak don't speak too compellingly you'll be you in trouble then you have, people will capture you so Faith then is coming in a divine way. We should faith should be our deity, not our doorstep that we wipe our feet on. My guru is best; your guru is bad. Uh, so, and we have to. And so, I mean, it may be hard to honor everyone's faith and everyone. But if you keep enough distance from everyone, then you can honor everyone. So you have to find the right distance. Also, hmm? you may think, I don't know how they could have faith in that sect over there. And that teacher. I don't know how they could. huh? And I can give you a thousand reasons why they shouldn't. Hmm? And there may be, but still you are supposed to respect all beings, all things. But to speak of people that are interested in spiritual life, maybe they went down a path that you thought was wrong, maybe it is wrong. Hmm? But you're not going to correct it all. Hmm? You show an example. If people are inspired by that, then. That's all you've got, you know, there's nothing else you've got going for you. Meanwhile, you respect everyone. So, how do you do that? Sometimes you've got to keep them at a distance. If you keep enough distance from everybody, you can respect everybody. Hmm? You can think, well, at least, you know, he's a human being and, you know, he, he's, he's trying for spiritual life and hmm, too close, then the things may get in the way and bother you, mind. So, this is a little secret I learned keep enough distance from everybody. The same thing goes with the guru. Keep enough distance from the guru that you'll respect the guru. Guru is like fire. Hmm? In, in context of fire, things will cook gradually. You know, you, 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 we need fire to eat and to keep warm with, but it can burn you also. So we have to know, and a guru must know, how to keep the student at a certain distance. Some can be closer, some can be further. Which is better off? The close ones or the far ones? You're better off wherever you're better off. And then and that will be a mutual understanding. Hmm? Some need to be close, some need to be at a distance. What if some need to be at a distance to think the guru never does anything, Never, he, he's in, he, he doesn't walk on the ground. So, be at a distance, you think like that, that will help you progress, we can get closer then. The fact that he walks on the ground, you'll find charming also. Hmm? you think, oh, it's so great the way he walks on the ground. It's so beautiful. It's as if he doesn't touch the ground. <laughs> Something like that. Well we do want to thank thank you. Walking on our ground. Okay. <laughs> I
0: think just the fact that Tripparariswami has the presence to talk about the guru in terms of her <laughs> and tell you a lot about him. Mm-hmm. And so uh, on behalf of our little sangha, I want to thank you for being our positive numbers.
1: Okay. Krishna.
0: <laughs>